election. But if we believe in election that out of that sinful mass of humanity that God foresaw, he chose some, then it also means that God did not choose some others. And that's what's before us tonight. It's called reprobation. It's a, a difficult concept. It's, a, it's an awe-filled reality that God has chosen not only to save some, but he has chosen not to save some or to pass them by, to leave them in their sin and condemn them for it. And he's predestined this, their eternal destruction from before the creation of the world. Now, it's this doctrine of reprobation that is really, I think, at the source of, of the rejection of the doctrine of election. Many people who, who refuse the doctrine of election do so because they recognize if you embrace election, then you have to embrace reprobation. If we said God chooses to save everyone, that would be a lot easier to swallow. But when we say God chooses to save some and chooses not to save some others, then, well, then some people go so far as to say, your God is my devil could never believe on a God who does that. And their minds, having conceived of God according to their own imaginations, say things that, that would well, really blaspheme God. So we come to God's word. Reprobation is, is the teaching of the Bible. And we're called to know God as he's revealed himself in his word. Called to bow our head before the sovereign God and his sovereign word. We're called to tremble before this truth. But before we leave tonight, we have to notice that, that there's more than one kind of trembling. There's a trembling that's appropriate for the one who does not know the Lord and does not walk with him. And there's a different trembling that's appropriate for the Christian who strives to walk with the Lord. Let's look at reprobation tonight. First of all, the revelation of this teaching and then the response to this teaching. Those two points, the revelation of this teaching in the Bible and then the response that we're called to in terms of this teaching. Well, looking at Article 15 again, it begins that saying that Holy Scripture highlights election and brings it out more clearly for us in that it further bears witness that not all people have been chosen, but that some have not been chosen or have been passed by in God's eternal election. You confess this doctrine of reprobation that God has revealed that he and his free and sovereign self, has from all eternity determined, has decreed that there are some he will not send saving grace to, but he will pass by them, he will leave them into the sin in which they've plunged themselves, and then he will condemn them eternally for all their sins. Before we attempt to understand a bit more what that means, we should notice that it is clearly revealed in Scripture. Romans 9 does that. We'll come back to that in a moment. But, but really, every passage in Scripture that teaches election is also teaching reprobation. And some, some like 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, you can even hear it when you read it in the context, but 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9 says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. And the apostle goes on to describe two kinds of people. Clearly, some are destined not for wrath, suggesting some are destined for wrath. Jesus, in that high priestly prayer of John 17, prays about his, his disciples 
the eleven, but then also Judas. He, he says to his father, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Or none has been lost but the one doomed to destruction, one translation says. Judas's betrayal of Christ and his own destruction were ordained from before the creation of the world. And you can find that in Acts chapter 1, when they've lost Judas now as one of the apostles and they're gathered, the early saints are gathered now to elect another man to fulfill and to fill that office that has been vacated by Judas. And in Romans, excuse me, in Acts 1, verse 15, in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, about 120, said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And then you skip down and you find the scripture, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. And so the early church is confessing that Judas was predestined to destruction. Turning to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Peter makes the point that the disobedient stumble over Christ. And then he says that, quote, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Or in the one chapter book of Jude, verse 4, for certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among us. Or certain men who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. So you, you hear these different texts in scripture. We often pass them over, but these are, these are rather frightening, aren't they? That God has destined some for destruction. Now when you look at Romans chapter 9, it becomes very clear here, doesn't it? That there's two sides to God's predestination, his sovereign choice in determining man's destinies. And if we would talk about election in Jacob, then we also have to talk about reprobation in Esau. These two go together, don't they? Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I hated. And for anyone who denies the doctrine of reprobation, then really the, the flow and the questions of, of Romans 9 don't make any sense. You notice their objections come up at certain points, but, but they're objections that would never be asked of the Arminian who denies the teaching of reprobation. Right? When verse 14 of Romans 9 says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Well, that's the, the question the apostle asks. He brings up the objections some have, but it's an objection to verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. And if you belong to the category of those who say, well, it just means that God loved Esau a little less, well, then how would you interpret verse 14? If it just means God loved Jacob a little more than Esau, then, then who would ever ask, is there unrighteousness with God? No, it's, a, it's a question provoked by the revelation of reprobation. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Well, if you believe that God saves everyone who first chooses him 
or wills God, you wouldn't find that objection there. But that objection, verse 19, is a reply to verse 18. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he and whom he wills, he hardens. You see? You can't read Romans 9 and, and deny the reality here of a God of predestination who both elects and who reprobates. The objections prove the very point. And yet, these objections are actually ones we're all tempted to raise, not just belong to some other people. Our own hearts often respond, don't they? We, we feel somehow that we are inherently more wise than God, more righteous than God, more loving than God. And we're tempted to, to try to pull God down, and we want to evaluate him, we want to judge him. And, and the Holy Spirit says in verse 20, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Oh, man, just a, a creature. We're just creatures. We're, we're flesh. We've been made by God. We, we do not know all things as God knows all things. We cannot comprehend as God comprehends himself. And on top of that, we are sinful creatures whose, whose very sense of righteousness and justice has been terribly skewed. So the Holy Spirit says, close your mouth. Don't accuse God of wrong. We are not to speak where God has been silent. We're not to go beyond Scripture, but we are to go where Scripture goes. And so we can say a little bit more tonight because Scripture goes further. And it tells us some things that help us understand reprobation to some degree so that we don't say foolish things and so that we can defend the character of our God in this world. There's two things we have to know. Number one, that God is completely sovereign in reprobation. And number two, that God is completely just in reprobation. And you see that if you look at verses 10 through 13 of Romans 9, verse 10, and only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born or having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. You see what the Apostle Paul does here by the Spirit. He, he takes one example to, to highlight this predestining decree of God, election and reprobation, and he presses uh, a point here to show that the distinction between the elect and the reprobate, the distinction lies entirely in God. It's God who has determined. It's God who has distinguished. There is nothing in Jacob or Esau that causes the difference between the two of them in God's predestining decree. That's important because, you know, some would like to say that the reason one person is elect and the other is reprobate is because one person is more deserving or more predisposed to believing or one person is going to believe on the Lord, the other is not. But that can't be. The apostle points to three evidences to prove his point. First, notice in the example he appeals to Jacob and Esau are actually twins. They have the same father. They have the same mother, they share the same womb, and they share the same womb at the same time. In terms of nature, there's no distinction. And then the apostle notes that the one distinction there is, 
that one is born before the other, he's older, is the distinction that actually would go in the favor of Esau. He's the older. He gets the place of priority. But in God's predestining, God not only disregards that distinction, he reverses, as it were, and puts forward Jacob in terms of election. And then notice, thirdly, the point that God does this. He decrees it before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad. Already God had distinguished, saying the older would serve the younger. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So the difference between the elect, those who are chosen for salvation, the reprobate, those who are not chosen for salvation, the difference does not lie in the people, but in the sovereign God who decrees, who decides, who decides whom he chooses for salvation and who he does not choose for salvation. There is no more or more ultimate cause than the sovereign will of God and his free good pleasure. He's God. But then the second thing we have to see is not just that God is sovereign in this, but that God is just in this. There are many who hear this teaching for the first time, and they say, what kind of a God is that? who determines to condemn some before they're even born. Well, Article 15 goes on, doesn't it? A couple lines down. That not all people have been chosen, but that some have not been chosen or been passed by in God's eternal election. That is, concerning whom God, on the basis of his entirely free, most just, irreproachable, and unchangeable good pleasure, made the following decision. This is what... Reprobation is, this is the decision of reprobation. First, to leave them in the common misery into which, by their own fault, they have plunged themselves. Secondly, not to grant them saving faith and the grace of conversion. Thirdly, finally, to condemn and eternally punish them, having been left in their own ways and under his just judgment, not only for their unbelief, but also for all their other sins in order to display his justice. Some Arminians were suggesting that Jesus paid for everyone's sins, and the only sin anyone is condemned for is the sin of unbelief. And the canons are saying, no, for all their sins, they'll be punished. But notice in there how much it speaks about the justice and the righteousness of God. No one can charge God with injustice when reprobation is rightly understood. For reprobation always includes not only a passing by man in his sin, but also condemnation. And condemnation always involves... Guilt and blameworthiness. When God chooses to pass by, he leaves man in the sin into which he's plunged himself. And when God condemns man for that sin, he does nothing unjust. Remember the very starting point of the canons? How it opened up and said God would do no injustice had he chosen to destroy all of us, right? There's no one righteous, no not one. No one has a claim to eternal life. All of us were equally worthy of death. All of mankind are equally sinful, guilty, worthy of damnation. God would be perfectly just to choose to save none of us. And the fact that God chooses to save some does not mean in any way that God is unjust. 
But here you see then there's a difference, isn't there, between election and reprobation. On the one hand, we could say, you know, these are two sides of a, of a coin, right? Election and reprobation. But we have to be careful because they are not, they're not equal, are they? They're not equal. They're not exact opposites. Let me read J.R.C. Sproul from his book. Um, something about choosing. I forgot the name suddenly. Uh, R.C. Sproul writes, To understand the Reformed view of the matter, we must pay close attention to the crucial distinction between positive and negative decrees of God. Positive has to do with God's active intervention in the hearts of the elect. Negatives have to do with God passing over the non-elect. The Reformed view teaches that God positively or actively intervenes in the lives of the elect to ensure their salvation. The rest of mankind, God leaves to themselves. He does not create unbelief in their hearts. That unbelief is already there. He does not coerce them to sin. They sin by their own choices. In the Calvinist view, the decree of election is positive, but the decree of reprobation is negative. That's one way to say it, isn't it? There's a difference, right? Because because in election, the ground or the basis of our salvation is not in any way in us. But in reprobation, the ground of condemnation is entirely in the sinner. You see? God's not a tyrant who condemns people to hell just because he happens to feel like it one day. He's the righteous judge who condemns people for their sins. We should understand that there's no one who will be in hell who will be saying, I'm condemned, God, because you did not elect me. I'm condemned, God, because you reprobated me. No, but everyone in hell will have to say, I am condemned because I have rebelled against you and I have sinned. And actually, there will be no one in hell who will be saying, God, I love you and I want to be with you. No one. But all those in hell will be those who hate God, do not want to be with God, would spit in his face. But still, some people try to blame God by saying that, yes, God may condemn people because of their sin, but somehow he's responsible for their sin. He, he made them to be sinners. The Bible says two things about that. Number one, God is in control of sin. Number two, God is not the author of sin. We know God is in control of all sin. He has ordained the fall into sin of Adam. He ordained the treachery of Judas, but he is not the author of it, and that's an enormous distinction. God controls sin for his purposes, but man's guilt and responsibility he bears, even though these two things go side by side. Acts 2 verse 23 says that this this man, Peter preaches, meaning Jesus, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And then he says, and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You are guilty. It was a horrendous crime. God was in sovereign control and gave him to you. You see, God's not the author of sin. Think of for instance, Pharaoh, right? You read, you read through the book of Exodus, you read that Pharaoh hardens his heart. You read that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Well, the hardening of heart that God does is, is to give Pharaoh over to his own hardness. God gives man up to his own desires. Does God does not implant evil desires in the heart. 
God does not take innocent creatures and, and, and decide to make them sinners. God's decree of reprobation cannot be understood apart from recognizing the guilt and depravity of sinners. God gives sinners up, the ones he has not elected, the ones he has reprobated. He gives them to themselves. He gives them over to who they are. That's actually the, the course the whole universe would go that way, but for the restraining power of God, right? Why tonight do all your neighbors not come over to kill you? One answer, because God restrains them. God restrains sin. But in his just judgment, he also lifts that restraint and lets hearts become and walk in the ways of wickedness that they are. So an election... The believer can take no credit. Praise God, you've done it all. You intruded my life with salvation. But in reprobation, the sinner must take all the credit, must take all the blame. God, it's all of me. I hated you. I rejected you. And I deserve condemnation. And that, I believe, is the teaching of the Bible. Now, how shall we respond to it? How shall we respond to this doctrine of reprobation? That God leaves some in their sins, passes by them, and condemns them for their sins. Well, the ultimate response, if you look back on the Forms and Prayers book, is Article 18. It's, it's, it's one of humility, of awe, and of praising God. Article 18, page 263, it says, To those who complain about this grace of an undeserved election and about the severity of a just reprobation, We reply with the words of the apostle, Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? And with the words of our Savior, Have I no right to do what I want with my own? Remember that parable? The the workers, the early morning workers were, they agreed to work a day for denarius, but then the the master hires other people throughout the day, and then he pays them all the same. And the, the workers who agree to work for denarius are angry and Jesus making the point, I paid you what's fair. If I want to give more to others that they don't deserve, what's that to you? It's, it's grace. It's not a matter of justice. And then it concludes Article 18 with Romans 11, which is the conclusion to this whole section in Romans we're looking at. With reverent adoration of these secret things, We cry out with the apostle, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways beyond tracing out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has first given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him, And to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. It's a a call, isn't it, to adore the Lord. To say you are God and we are not. To let God be God. To say that your judgments are inscrutable. We are in no position to evaluate you, God. You know all things. You are altogether righteous. We worship you. All things are from you. You are the author. All things are through you. You are the God who saves. All things are to you. Both your mercy to save and your justice to condemn. All glory is yours. Give glory to God. Give glory to God. What a a climactic moment in that argument of Romans 9 through 11. When you come to it all and, 
and you fall down on your face and you give God glory, the God of mercy and the God of justice, the one true and glorious God, give him his due. We worship at his feet. But we might be inhibited from worshiping if we're worried, having heard about reprobation, by the question, am I perhaps reprobate? And in some ways it might be a rather natural question. Somebody's pointed out, you know, we tend towards that. We hear about some disease and we wonder, maybe I have that. And when we read in the Bible about reprobation, it is so, it is so weighty. We might think, what if by, I can't say chance, what if I happen to be reprobate? And this is where Article 16 of the Canons is so beautiful. I encourage you to look there on page 263 because you see a couple things here, but one of them is the very pastoral tone of the canons. In the days when the canons were written, when this dispute was going on in the Netherlands, the Arminians were constantly caricaturing the position of the Reformed to scare people, saying that if you believe in this God that the Reformed are proclaiming, then you believe in this tyrant who haphazardly takes from, you know, an innocent people and casts them into hell. And the next article dealing about deceased infants of believers, they were scaring people into thinking that, that, that God might just do that haphazardly with your children, cast them into hell. And, and so the canons are trying to combat that, and they're trying to lead God's people in a pastoral way to understand these truths and respond to them. But they're really just echoing the pastoral nature of Scripture. And so you have a lot of these very pastoral words in the canons. But Article 16 presents to us three categories of people. The first is the the opening several lines. It says, those who do not yet actively experience within themselves a living faith in Christ or an assured confidence of heart, peace of conscience, a zeal for childlike obedience, and a glorying in God through Christ but who nevertheless use the means by which God has promised to work these things in us, such people ought not to be alarmed at the mention of reprobation, nor to count themselves among the reprobate. Rather, they ought to continue diligently in the use of the means to desire fervently a time of more abundant grace and to wait for it in reverence and humility." Now you see what's going on here. Some might be tempted to count themselves reprobate and then to, and then to give up on the means of grace. They don't attend to the preaching anymore. They don't, they don't come to hear Jesus Christ declared. They might say, why bother? I'm probably reprobate. And the cans are saying, no, 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 no. If, if you don't yet experience that living faith, but you're making use of the means, continue with them. Cry out to God. He promises to save all who call upon him. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Believe the promises. Keep pursuing the Lord. Keep crying out for mercy. But don't couch yourself among the reprobate and turn from the Lord. And then there's a second category. On the other hand, those who seriously desire to turn to God, to be pleasing to him alone, and to be delivered from the body of death, but are not yet able to make such progress along the way of godliness and faith as they would like, such people ought much less to stand in fear of the teaching concerning reprobation, since our merciful God has promised that he will not snuff out a smoldering wick and that he will not break a bruised reed. Well, this next category 
Well, that sounds like the Christian, doesn't it? Who's with the Lord. It sounds like Paul in Romans 7, the things I I do, I don't want to do. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Who will deliver me? I need help, Lord. It, it sounds like the saints coming next Sunday to the Lord's Supper. Not righteous in themselves, but saying, Lord, feed me and nourish me and sanctify me. I, I need you. And the canons are saying, much less do such people need to fear the teaching of reprobation. Because God's not in the business of breaking the weak. He doesn't find a wick barely on fire and take pleasure to snuff it out. He doesn't, doesn't see a reed that's bent as he's walking by and take pleasure to snap it off. It's the very opposite. Comes in his great mercies to those who are, who are low and crying out, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me? And he shows grace and mercy. We have to be careful how we deal with this sobering doctrine of reprobation, don't we? It's not revealed in Scripture to terrify the believers. In fact, it's interesting, isn't it, how the Apostle Paul even begins in Romans 9. What a rebuke to anyone who callously talks about election reprobation and flippantly speaks rash statements. Whenever we're like that, we have to go back to Romans 9 and listen to how the Apostle Paul approaches it. The Spirit bears me witness that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. See, the apostle is explaining here, he's talking about the fact that there's all these Jews who don't believe on the Lord Jesus. He's going to make the point that the word of God has not failed. But there are, there are those descendant of Israel physically who are not true Israel. But Paul does not approach that in a casual way. He says, my heart breaks. I could, I could wish that I were cursed so they could live. We hear someone struggling and asking, am I reprobate? Never to be careless or flippant with them. We need a broken heart as the Apostle Paul had. So the summons to those who are using the means of grace but don't yet have faith is keep using the means of grace. Come to the word of God and see the Christ and cry out to him. And and the response for those who do know Christ, who believe on him, but say, I'm not making the progress I want. I still find so much sin in me. Again, the calling is not to be frightened at the word reprobation, but to know that God is merciful. I believe, help my unbelief, was, was the cry Jesus heard, and he responded to it with love and action. And so, if you believe but are struggling, you already see the fruit in your life. In fact, as one Puritan said, the very desire for grace is the evidence of grace. But there is a third category of persons. Four or five lines up from the bottom of Article 16. However, those who have forgotten God and their Savior, Jesus Christ, and have abandoned themselves wholly to the cares of the world and the pleasures of the flesh... Such 
people have every reason to stand in fear of this teaching as long as they do not seriously turn to God. Isn't that sobering? There are some who should tremble with dread when they hear the word reprobation, when they hear it proclaimed that God has decreed some to eternal damnation. It should should frighten their soul because it reveals a God who does not take sin lightly. A God who is not so trivial about sin as the world is and as many people have painted God out to be as one who's not really offended, who doesn't really care, who just winks at sin. To them, he must appear as a terrifying judge before whom they must stand and give an account and face his just judgment. And yet even here, it doesn't say to these that they should count themselves as reprobate. No one in this life can know the reprobate unless they receive a special revelation, I guess, like Judas. But even he didn't perhaps know it. In this life, there's the call of the gospel, come. And though those who are not walking with the Lord ought to be frightened by this, it's not a fright that should drive them from the Lord, but should cause them to turn from sin and run to the Lord, to the Savior who says, come to me and I will save you, who turns away no one who comes to him. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. The thief on the cross, saved in his last hours of life, but saved truly with Christ right now in paradise. Never in the Bible are we told you need to figure out if you're elect or reprobate, and then you can find out if you can be received by God. That's not it. Instead, The gospel goes forward and says to everyone, you are a sinner. Come to Christ and you will be saved. Call upon the Lord and you will be saved. That's the promise. The teaching of reprobation is never an excuse to avoid God. But it is a sobering warning to sinners to seek him. So how should we tremble? For the unbeliever, he should tremble in terror. And he should therefore turn from his sin to Christ and be saved. For the believer, he should tremble in awe and stand amazed at grace that saved us. And give glory to God that he's a God of mercy and he's a God of justice. And these are not conflicted in God's perfect being. He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. He's a loving God. He's a kind God. He's a gracious God. He sent his beloved son for sinners. And so great is his justice, rather than to leave our sin unpunished, he punished it in the death of his own son. And so great is his mercy, than rather to leave us in our sin and condemn us, he saved us by the blood of his own beloved cross of Jesus, the justice and mercy of God kiss, and at the cross of Jesus, the Christian cries out the glory of his God. He says with the apostle, oh, the depth 
of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, we are humbled before the Sovereign One. We often have no idea who it is we are speaking to, who it is we are living before, and whose word we come to hear week after week. You are so much greater than our vain conceptions of you. Yet, Lord, you're merciful to us in all of our sinful misconceptions. Thank you, Lord, for exploding our categories and for revealing truly who you are through Christ your Son and by his word. God, we praise you for your justice and we praise you for your mercy. We pray, Lord, that where there is careless living, that you would awaken a heart to turn to you and maybe even this teaching would cause fear. And where, Lord, there are believers struggling, we pray, Lord, we might not be frightened away by this teaching, but that we would know that you are full of goodness and mercy towards your children and you will not snuff out a smoldering wick. How we thank you for such a gentle Savior, our Lord Jesus. But he was pleased to stand firmly against the pride of the Pharisees. But he was all the more pleased to bow down and to help the broken, the weak, and the weeping. Oh God, we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.